Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. One of the great chapters in the Bible. Tonight, we are, again, looking at the life of Abraham because God made some some great promises to Abraham. And we're going to see how his faith was tested. Now, before we read, remember that in Genesis chapter 12, in the midst of the depravity uh, of humanity, God comes to Abraham with a rescue plan for humanity. And, and it all started with Abraham. It's Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And through your son, I'm going to give you many descendants, which will become a great nation. And I'm going to give them a land in which to live. And I will, through those descendants, bless all the peoples, all the ethno-linguistic people groups on the face of the earth. That's what he meant through those promises. And so he makes those promises in Genesis chapter 12, and all these chapters pass uh, before Abraham and Sarah actually have a son together. So there's a delay in God's promise, and so Abraham has to walk by faith. He's a good example of walking by faith. And we see that he has high moments, and we see he has low moments. But last week in Genesis 21, we saw that Uh, Abraham and Sarah, advanced in years, gave birth to their son named Isaac. The fulfillment of the promise of God. Wonderful, wonderful passage. You can just imagine the joy as Abraham and Sarah enjoy their new baby Isaac, which makes chapter 22 all the more startling. Chapter 22 is a shocking passage, and, and we're going to see how Abraham's faith was tested, and draw some application to our lives and think about how our faith may be tested. Because just like Abraham, we are called to walk by faith. So look what it says there in Genesis chapter 22. Verse 1, it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Shocking, shocking verses. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful for who you are. God, you are the one true God, full of grace and mercy and truth. You are sovereign over the universe. You are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. You are present everywhere. You are the living God. And we just thank you tonight for who you are. And we thank you tonight for what you do in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you provide for us. And even as we journey back thousands of years ago to the time of Abraham, we're, we're seeing, Lord, how you were working in his life to give him descendants so that one day through his descendants you could send a Messiah that would die for the sins of the world so that anyone that places their faith in Jesus could be blessed with salvation. And so we're grateful for those redemptive promises made to Abraham that uh, are, are so relevant for our lives today. If it were not for your fulfillment of your promise to Abraham, we could not have salvation because there would be no Messiah There would be no salvation. There would be no Savior. So we're grateful that you are a God who saves. You are a God who is mighty to save. And you are a God who is willing and able to save. And God, I pray that you would just use this time tonight to draw us closer to yourself. Use this time tonight to give us a hunger for your word, a a, a deepening love for your word. And may we leave this place different 
than when we came. We don't want to just go through the motions, God. We want to know that we are in the presence of, of a holy God. And so would you just, would you just meet with us in a, in, a, in, a, in a special way? And we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is a narrative passage, and I want us to walk through this narrative passage under four headings, four scenes, if you will, of this passage that help us to understand it. And this is in your notes, so you can just follow along with us as we go. First of all, I want you to see the test decided. The test decided. Now, it says there in chapter 22, verse 1, after these things, after God gave Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, like he promised, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, uh, the reason that we see that the chapter begins by telling us that God was testing Abraham is to take away for us the, the drama of how it's going to turn out. I mean, if we didn't know this was a test, it, this chapter would be hard to even read through. It would just be gut-wrenching, but we know at the very beginning it's a test. And so that helps us to understand the ebb and flow of the passage, what's going on here, and read it through those lenses. We have the blessing of, of hindsight. We, we see how it turned out and, and why God did what he did. And so we don't have to be on pins and needles as we read this passage. Now, now keep in mind, Abraham did not know it was a test. <laughs> we know it. Abraham didn't know it. So just keep that in mind as we walk through this. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, here's the question. Why would God test Abraham? And let me even take it a step further. Why would God test us? Why is God a God who tests? Well, there are at least three reasons that tests from God are of utmost importance in your life and my life. And even though they can be hard, they should be welcomed in our life because of what they accomplish. For example, tests clarify our priorities. Tests clarify our priorities. God had just given Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac, and now he's going to tell him to kill that son. He had given Abraham and Isaac, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham and Sarah a great gift. And now God is saying, I want you to sacrifice that gift that I have given you. God here, I believe, is, is clarifying Abraham's priorities. He wanted to see, listen, if the gift was more important to Abraham than the giver. Did you hear that? He wanted to see if the gift, Isaac, was more important to Abraham than the giver. Sometimes it, it, it's possible for us to fall in love with God's gifts and God's blessings, and we love those things more than we love the giver, the one who gave us those blessings. Have you found out that sometimes in life, God will sometimes take away from you things that are precious to show you uh, that your priorities are wrong? Anybody ever experienced that before? Where God has intervened in your life and taken you through a very uh, painful time of brokenness where he removes some things for your life, things that perhaps you started to love more than the giver of the one that who, uh, the giver of the one who gave you those things. And so tests uh, clarify our priorities. When when we find ourselves losing something we love or called to sacrifice we love or leave behind something we love, it, it clarifies uh, the priorities in our heart. Is, is, is the Lord really at the top of our list? And, 
Abraham is going to see if Isaac, listen, was, uh, God was going to see if, if Isaac was higher on Abraham's priority list than God was. Or if he was going to obey God. So tests clarify our priorities. Hard times, uh, like nothing else, can help you to discern what your priorities really are in life. Secondly, tests reveal our hearts. Why is God testing Abraham? Why does God test us? Tests reveal our hearts. Here's a great statement. You've, you've heard me say this before. But when we are squeezed, what's on the inside comes out. If I had up here with me a tube of toothpaste and I squeeze it, what would come out? Toothpaste, right? Not a trick question. Toothpaste. And, and when God squeezes you or God allows life to squeeze you, whatever's on the inside is going to come out. Right? And, and sometimes God will test us to show us what's really on the inside. To, to show us what's really going on in our lives. Say, wait, is this really something God does? Well, turn to Deuteronomy. Hold your place in Genesis, but turn a few books over. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then you've got Numbers. And the fifth book in the Torah is Deuteronomy. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Show you how God dealt with his people after he delivered them from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 8, look in verse 1. The Bible says, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply to go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. This is right before he leads them in the promised land. He had preserved them for 40 years in the wilderness. He says that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or not. And so he's saying here that God led Israel to wander in the wilderness as a test so that they could see what was truly in their hearts. You know, God had gotten them out of Egypt, but Egypt had not completely gotten out of them. And, and God took them through the wilderness to show them they still had a lot of Egypt in them, still had a lot of idolatry in their lives. And he was, he was testing them through the hardships of the wilderness to reveal their heart condition. Now, again, God knows what's in our heart, right? But sometimes we need to know what's in our heart. Hold your place, but turn to James, New Testament, James chapter 1. I want to show you a, a New Testament scripture that speaks of the test of life. Right after Hebrews, James chapter 1. Tremendous book. We're going to preach through James sometime down the line. Love James. Look what it says in James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that's counterintuitive. Count it joy when you encounter trials. We would expect it to say, count it joy when you receive a blessing from God. 
Count it uh, joy when something goes right in your life. Count it joy when everyone's healthy. Count it joy when everyone's prosperous. Count it joy when you uh, experience good things. But that's not what it says. The Bible says count it joy when you meet, when you encounter various kinds of trials. Now, why would the Bible say that? Why would God say it? Why would he want you to, to be joyful about your trials? Because trials don't make you feel real joyful, do they? So how in the world can we be joyful about our hardship? Look what he says. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith, there it is, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's saying here that you should count it joy when you are tested with trials because God uses those tests to build your, your character. That's good, isn't it? So, so if, if the hardship is being used by God to build your character, you should be glad about that. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it can mean that you rejoice in the midst of your hardship. Tests reveal our hearts. They're a good way to know what's on the inside. You know, in school, they give tests. And why do they give tests in school? They give tests in school so that, so that people know where they are in their, uh, in their journey of education. Are they learning? Are they growing? Are they uh, advancing? Are they achieving? Are they getting the material that they are being taught? Tests reveal where people are educationally. Well, life tests reveal where we are spiritually. Doesn't mean they're easy, but they are very, very important. So think about it like this. A test of life is actually God's grace being shown to you. There's a paradigm shift, right? That, that when you go through something hard, that's God's grace. That's God's grace. And he's going to use it somehow, some way in your life. Now here's a third thought about the test for Abraham and, and the test in our life. The way we handle tests can honor God and encourage others. The way we handle these tests of life, and we all have them, can honor God and encourage others. In other words, here we are, thousands of years later, you know what? We're going to be encouraged tonight by the way Abraham handled his test. Or you could go read the book of Job and be encouraged by the way Job handled his test, right? I mean, they're models of perseverance, models of endurance, models of faith, models of trust in God. And, and we're going to learn from them. But guess what? You can be an Abraham or Job in someone else's life. You can show others how to suffer. You can show others how to go through tough times. You can show others that when life brings tests your direction, you can face those by trusting in God and letting God do a work in your life. And so tests are... Not just God's grace to us, they are real opportunities for us to impact others. Because I've got news for you tonight. And some of you don't believe this, but I've got news for you tonight. People are watching you. You, tell, you, you, you claim to be a Christian, you, you go to Longview Point Baptist Church, and, and people know where you stand. Listen, they're watching you. And, and they get really, really interested when the wheels begin, begin to come off. They want to see how you handle the hardship. H- handling blessings easy, right? That's easy. How do you handle it when it's tough? Does, listen, does Jesus make a difference in hardship? People want to know that. 
And they can see that by the way you respond to your tests. Your, 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 your handling of tests can honor God and encourage others. I love this quote from Warren Wearsby. He writes, In times of testing, it is easy to think only about our needs and our burdens. Instead, we should be focusing on bringing glory to Jesus Christ. We find ourselves asking, how can I get out of this? Anyone never asked that question before? How do I get out of this mess? How quick can I get out of this mess? Instead of asking, he says, what can I get out of this that will honor the Lord? We sometimes, oh listen, don't miss this. We sometimes waste our sufferings by neglecting or ignoring opportunities to reveal Jesus Christ to others who are watching us go through the furnace. Listen to me, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your trial. Don't waste your test. Don't waste your hardship. God can use that in mighty ways in other people's lives. And so back to Genesis 22, we see the test decided. Abraham, you know that son I gave you, Isaac? I want you to take him and I want you to kill him. The test decided. God was going to reveal what was in Abraham's heart. Number two, I want you to see the task described. The task described. Look back with me in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now that's the task. The test is, I want you to sacrifice your son, and he tells him exactly how he wants him to do it. He wants him to take him. He wants him to journey to the land of Moriah. God would show him uh, the mountain where he was to take him up and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, burnt offerings are violent. When, in this day and time, when someone offered an animal sacrifice as a burnt offering, they would normally uh, kill the animal and then chop it into pieces. A really violent thing. And then they would burn the animal as an offering to God. And if you read the book of Leviticus, after the law was uh, put into place by the Lord through Moses, the, the description of the burnt offering is, is really violent. Really violent. But this is before the law, but still it's a burnt offering. So we don't know exactly what this burnt offering was to entail, but we do know that God told Abraham, I want you to go to a mountain, I'm going to show you, and I want you to be prepared to offer Uh, not be prepared, I want you to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Can you imagine how excruciating that would have been to hear? And look how God describes Isaac to Abraham. It's almost like God is really squeezing here. Look what he says. Take your son. That's that's number one. I mean, your son, your your, your son, your flesh, take your son. Look what he says next. Your only son. Your only son between you and, and, and uh, Sarah. Your only son. Then look what he says next. Whom you love. Like God's just turning the knife of pain in his life, right? Your son. Your only son. Whom you love. Yeah, I, that, that's the one I want you to sacrifice. Wow. I, I just cannot imagine being in Abraham's shoes. And hearing this command, I just can't imagine how I would have responded. R. Kent Hughes writes, God was asking him to act against common sense. 
his natural affections, and his lifelong hope. Think about that. Asking him to act against common sense, his natural affection, and his lifelong hope. The task described. Yeah, that son, your only son, the son you love, kill him. That's the task. And, and so this, this passage it, it has a weight to it, doesn't, doesn't it? A, a poignancy. When we see exactly what God is asking Abraham or commanding Abraham to do. Which leads us to the third scene. We've seen the, the test decided and the task described. But third, we're going to see the tragedy diverted. The passage gets really good. Really good. Look what it says in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We'll talk about that some more a little bit later. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Probably means that Isaac was the one carrying this wood up the mountain, which means that Isaac was not a little baby at this point. Uh, Isaac was probably a, uh, a young man able to, to carry wood. And it says, he took in his hand, he got to the top of the mountain with Isaac, with the wood. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac's no dummy. They're walking along, and he says, I see we have wood, and I see we have a knife, and I see we're going to make fire, but I don't see the animal. What's, what's going on here? He's starting to, to wonder what's happening. Look at Abraham's response. Can you imagine the emotion of this moment? It's easy for us just to read this, you know, black letters on white pages and, and miss how powerful this moment was. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine Abraham's trembling hands at this moment? Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I just can't wrap my mind around that. I can't imagine. I, I, it's just hard for me to fathom how Abraham is able to carry on in obedience here. I mean, his faith, more on this later, was just extraordinary. To be able to trust God at this level and do what God had told him to do. But look in verse 11. He's got the knife. He's got the wood. He's got the sacrifice, his son Isaac. But in verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham! Abraham! And he said, Here I am. You think that's how Abraham answered? Don't you think Abraham was glad to hear that interruption? Abraham! Abraham! I can imagine Abraham saying, Here I am! Here I am! He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, 
from me. In other words, your, your decision to obey me reveals what's truly in your heart. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide it, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And we can all take a deep breath, right? Oh, wow. I mean, just the tension. We were told early on it was a test, but we still feel the tension of, of Abraham bounding his son on top of wood and lifting up the knife. And, and when we hear the angel intervene, Abraham, Abraham, it's like, oh, it, 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 such a joy, such a joy to see the tragedy diverted. What happened here, Wade? God intervened to save Isaac's life. Pure and simple. Isaac was about to die at the hand of Abraham. And God intervened at the right time, to save Isaac's life. You might say it like this. God, God just God saved Isaac. We can assume. Now, here's something interesting about Genesis 22. We're never told how Abraham feels about all of this. We can imagine, can't we? But we're never, it never tells us Abraham was scared or Abraham was frightened or Abraham was angry or Abraham was anxious. or Just that never tells us. Uh, anything about Abraham's emotions, even after the tragedy is diverted. We don't know what Abraham's response was, but we can assume, can we not, that Abraham and Isaac felt immense relief and joy because of the deliverance. Immense relief and joy because of the deliverance. You know how many times I had someone tell me that when they, when they met Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they felt like a weight had been lifted. Maybe many of you in this room would describe your conversion in that same way. When you met the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that moment there was, there was joy, there was relief, there was this burden lifted off of you because you were no longer under your sin. Your sin has been forgiven. You've been reconciled to a holy God, knowing you're going to heaven when you die. You can, you can remember, can you not, the joy of that moment, the, the relief of that moment. That's what Abraham and Isaac are experiencing. We're assuming, but I, I, I think we're pretty close, that Abraham and Isaac probably went, whew, right? And felt the joy of the tragedy diverted, which reminds us of what it feels like when our tragedy is diverted, when God intervenes in our life. And when we were headed straight for that awful place called hell, when we were headed for eternity of separation from God, and we were lost and ruined and broken and far from God, God intervened, didn't he? God, if you're, listen, if you're saved tonight, it's because God intervened in your life. And God intervened, and you experienced salvation and forgiveness and relief and joy. We can identify with the emotions of this moment. So we've seen the, the test decided. We've seen the task described. We've seen the tragedy diverted. But fourth, I want us to talk about the triumph declared. The triumph declared. Back in verse 13, it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
Now, there is great triumph in this passage. And I want to give you three areas of triumph in this passage. First of all, this story describes the triumph of faith. The triumph of faith. I I love what Abraham says in verse 5. He says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So the boy and I are going and we're coming back. So Abraham is going to obey God, but he believes that God's going to do something to allow Isaac to come back with him. Now, how did Abraham have that kind of faith? What in the world did he think God was going to do to preserve his son who would be the, 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 the conduit through which God would build a great nation? How, 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 did he, how did he think God would work in all of this? Well, we don't have to wonder. Hebrews tells us, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to show you exactly what Abraham was thinking on this journey. Exactly what was going through his mind. And when we see this, we'll get some insight into why he was able to carry out this act. Or get to the point of carrying out this act in obedience to God. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. This passage is the great hall of faith. mentions the faith of some of the great men and women of God. And look what it says in Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, there it is again, tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So it's referring back to Genesis chapter 22. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now here's what was going through Abraham's mind the entire time. This is so good. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He was was close to death. He was about to kill him, but God intervened. And so we see here that the reason Abraham could obey God and carry out this this awful command from God and, and proceed to the point where he was raising his knife is because... Abraham believed in God's promises. And he knew, he said, God, you've given me the son, and he's the promised descendant through whom you're going to bless all of the peoples of the earth. So if you're going to have me kill him, you must be planning to raise him from the dead. That's the only way I can wrap my mind around this. Because he's the promised descendant. He's the one you're going to build a great nation through, through whom you will send the Messiah one day. So you got to do something, God. So I'll kill him if that's what you want me to do. I'm going to obey you, but I have faith. I trust you. I know that you're able even to raise him from the dead. That's amazing faith, is it not? Amazing faith. Now, what's interesting is we don't have a record of any type of resurrection before this in God's Word. Think about it. No record of resurrection. So he'd never seen someone physically resurrected from the dead. But still he knew that that God was able to do it. Great faith. So this is a a triumph of faith. When Abraham says, hey, we're going to go up to the mountain for a while, we're going to worship, and we'll both come back. (laughs) A triumph of faith. Secondly, it's a triumph of salvation. Look back with me in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, a triumph of salvation. God's intervention to save Isaac. There are some definite symbols or types here that we uh, can learn from. It says, And the angel of the Lord, verse 15, Genesis 22, verse 15, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven 
and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. He reemphasizes his promise to Abraham. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In other words, because he was going to give him a nation through Isaac and through the nation of the the Jewish people, send the Messiah, and the Messiah would die on the cross for the sins of the world. All the peoples would have the potential to be blessed with salvation. Isn't that wonderful? He's talking about you right there because you're part of the nations. And, And the reason you're saved tonight is because... God gave Abraham a son named Isaac, and God gave Isaac Jacob and Jacob Joseph, and God built a great nation and preserved them so that one day he could send the Messiah through the Jewish people, and one day Jesus died on the cross for your sins, right? So you could be blessed with salvation as one of the peoples that he's talking about in this passage. This is God's plan of redemption, again, unfolding he says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So this is a triumph of salvation. God was seeing what was in Abraham's heart, but he reemphasizes, The reason I've given you a son is for uh, my purposes to redeem a lost and dying world. A triumph of salvation. Isaac was saved, but it's also a picture of, of God providing salvation for all the peoples, all the ethno-linguistic people groups on the face of this earth. Which is, by the way, why we go and tell people the gospel. Because this promise is for, for, for them, right? That's why we tell them the gospel. That Jesus died so that they could be blessed if they'll place their faith in him. But here's the third triumph we see. The third triumph is a triumph of substitution. A triumph of substitution. Look what it says back in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. This gets really good. He called the name of that place where God intervened and provided a ram for the sacrifice instead of Isaac. He called it, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, uh, you say, Wade, what's the significance of of that phrase when it says, uh, the Lord will provide. What, what, what is that, that phrase all about? Well, th- the word can be translated, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it. The, the, the word here in the Hebrew is the word Jireh, the Lord Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. And, and it, it means to see beforehand, to see beforehand which is really what the word provision means. You ever heard the word provision? Provision means that you get your needs met, right? But the word provision comes from uh, two Latin words, pro, which means before, and vision, to see. That's what, the, that's what the word means. So this provision, this seeing beforehand, means that, that God saw the need and God provided for the need. In the Lord's case, he had seen beforehand or anticipated Abraham's need for a sacrifice, and he had personally provided a sacrifice. So you've heard the, the, the name of God, Jehovah Jireh. It comes from this passage where he says, God, the Lord, the Lord God provides. He is Jehovah Jireh. He provided a substitute for my son. So Isaac did not have to die. And here's what you need to understand. God is a great provider. He provided a substitute for Isaac. And guess what? He provided a substitute for us too, didn't he? 
He provided his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. He, Jesus was perfect. We're the ones that deserve the death penalty. We're the ones that deserve to die. We're the ones that deserve the punishment. But the Lord, in his grace, provided a substitute, Jesus Christ, for us. Jehovah Jireh. He provided for our salvation, just like he provided for Isaac's salvation and provided a ram to die in his place. So you can't read this passage, the ram in the thicket, the ram dying instead of Isaac. You can't read that without seeing the cross, can you? You just, you just can't, you can't see that. And so it's interesting to, to see how that unfolds. But also look what it says in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It's interesting to note that on this same mountain is where the temple would be built. Isn't that interesting? Where the sacrificial system would be carried out, which was another reminder of the ultimate sacrifice uh, found in Jesus Christ when he would come and die on the cross for our sins. Now, wait, here, here's, you say, wait, what's all this got to do with, with, with my day-to-day life? Well, let me just, let me help you think about Jehovah Jireh. This is in your notes. If we can trust God with the most important matter in our lives, which is our salvation from sin. By the way, just look at me for a minute. Would you agree that's the most important matter in our life? Where are you going to spend eternity? This life is short. Eternity is long. The most important thing in our life is our eternal destiny, our our relationship with God. That's the most important thing in our life. So listen, if we can trust God with the most important matter in our lives, he provides a substitute for us, we can trust him with every matter in our lives. Right? If you can trust him for what's most important, your salvation, you can trust him with everything in your life. It's interesting that sometimes we will trust God when it comes to our eternal destiny. We'll, we'll, we'll trust God when it comes to our, our salvation from sin, but we won't trust him with some of these other areas which are not nearly as significant or weighty. So we need to learn that we can trust God with every matter in our lives. He is a provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. He'll provide everything that you need. Now here's a summary of chapter 22. We've talked about this story under four headings. The test decided, the task described, the tragedy diverted, and the triumph declared. But here's a a summary statement. This comes from, from Alan Ross. He writes, The one who fears God, that is, the faithful worshiper, will obediently surrender to God whatever he asks, trusting in God's promises of provision and blessing. That's how it applies to you. The one who fears God, that is, the faithful worshiper, will obediently surrender to God, just like Abraham did, whatever he asks, trusting in God's promises of provision and blessing. Now, I told you this story pointed to Jesus. I want to read you just an excerpt from from a book. This is how we're going to close. I'm going to read you an excerpt from a book that we use in our house called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a little storybook Bible uh, that we use with our children. And the, the subheading of that book is, Every Story Whispers His Name. And the purpose of this children's Bible is to show uh, every, anyone reading it that every story, Old Testament, New Testament, it all points to Jesus. It's all fulfilled uh, in Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite stories in the Jesus Storybook Bible, I'm talking about a children's Bible here. I'm about to read you a children's Bible to you, okay? So just get comfortable. It's going to be story time, just a minute, all right? 
I, uh, every time I read the story of Abraham and Isaac from the Jesus story of the Bible, I, I can hardly get through it without getting choked up. That's how powerful it is. Because there's such a clear connection between that story and Jesus Christ. And so I want to read you the last section of the story of Abraham and Isaac from the Jesus Storybook Bible, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. This is after God saves Isaac and provides a, a sacrifice. It says, And as they sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of the fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky, God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them, but they must trust him. One day, someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. So every time you read the story of Abraham and Isaac, I hope you'll think about Calvary. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who went to that hill called Golgotha and of his own volition laid down his life for your sins and my sins, dying as our substitute so that we could be saved. Isn't that good news? Good news. And so this story so clearly points to Jesus, Jehovah Jireh, provider of a substitute. And I hope you see that tonight.